0: This is our Simon Don reading group. Uh, we're back with Simon Don this week. So we're picking up uh, volume two of the translation, which is the supplemental text to individuation in light of notions of form and information. Um, and then we were just talking about before we started recording, for whatever reason, the order of the text is different in the translation than it is in the original French version. So. In the translation, the text Complementary Notes on the Consequences of the Notion of the Individuation is the first one in Volume 2, whereas in the French text, the first portion is called History of the Notion of the Individual, and, and that, that one comes later in the English translation. So we'll follow the order of the English translation, just uh, as a note for anyone who's you know, reading along in French or who wants to consult the French, the order is different. I guess I won't really do a, a recap because uh, we're just picking up from the start. Uh, or maybe I'll just mention that this text here, um, as is noted in the translation, this text is was originally part of uh, Don's thesis. Um, so what eventually became individuation, but then he sort of at the last minute uh, cut it out of the text, and then it was supposed to be re included in the 1989 publication of the the second half of the text but for some reason i'm not sure exactly what the reason is but it wasn't it wasn't included in that edition and so it was only in the 2005 edition where the whole book is finally put back together and these supplementary texts are also included that it was finally published so yeah it it maybe has like a somewhat less i don't know canonical value than the the text of individuation itself but it uh It was originally written to to be a a part of that text, so we can try to make connections back to the first volume and and the text of individuation itself uh, as we go along. Okay, so I'll start reading and and then we'll go around for comments as usual. Chapter 1, Values in the Search for Objectivity. Section 1, Relative Values and Absolute Values. Value represents the symbol of the most perfect integration possible, i.e. the unlimited complementarity between the individual being and other individual beings. Value supposes that there is a way to make all realities complementary, and the simplest way is obviously to suppose that everything that exists is integrated into a universal will. A divine finality, the universalization of the principle of sufficient reason, supposes and halts this search for value. This finality seeks to compensate the inadequation among every living being with a dissymmetry accepted once and for all between, uh, sorry, once and for all between created beings and the creator being. God is invoked as the condition of complementarity. This complementarity can either result in, in a direct connection between a community and some sort of plan of a divine finality. This is precisely the meaning of the Old Testament with the notion of the chosen people, or in the constitution of a final virtual community of chosen ones who will only be determined after the trials and tribulations of terrestrial existence. This is the meaning of communal Christianity, or as an indefinite possibility of progress or regress along the path of the discovery of God. St. Paul and Simon de represent this will to direct transparency. An absolute and non-communal perfection is also conceivable, like Peggy's, which represents an effort toward integration that surpasses every preceding abstract thought. But we should note that the pre-Socratics conceived complementarity differently as a pair of contraries, birth and death, ascent and descent, paths leading upward and downward. For the pre-Socratics, the death of one being is the condition for the birth of another. What Nietzsche rediscovered as an essential myth in the pre-Socratics and integrated into his pantheism is the complementarity of the sum of, be- of becoming expressed by the notion of eternal return. In all, these case, <coughs> in all these cases, value is the action due to which there can be complementarity. The consequence of this principle is that three types of values are possible, two relative values and an absolute value. We can deem values relative when they express the appearance of a complementary condition. This value is linked to the very thing that constitutes this condition, but it nevertheless does not reside in this thing. We can consider that the value is attached to this thing without, however, being inherent in it. This is the value of the remedy that cures or of the nourishment that allows us to live. Here, there can be value as an organic condition or value as a technical condition, depending on whether the already realized condition is technical or organic. The third type of value is the value that makes relation possible, the beginning or initiation of the reaction that makes this activity possible and sustains itself once it has started. Culture can be ranked among these values, since it is a set of beginnings of action that are endowed with a rich schematism, waiting to be actualized into an action. Culture allows for problems to be resolved, but it does not allow for living or constructing organically. It supposes that the possibility of organic life and technical life is already given. But that the complementary possibilities do not create, do not correspond to one another and, cor- and consequently remain sterile. It thus creates the system of symbols that allows these possibilities to enter into mutual reaction. Uh, let's stop here. Um, right, so here we're picking up uh, to some extent from the end of, um, of individuation when we we had some discussion of values in the conclusion of of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And and so here, this notion of value is being used in relation to um, complementarity. So this is the idea of some sort of integration of everything into something coherent. Um, And so he points out a, a few different, Ways we can understand something like this integration, Um, and the what he calls the simplest way of understanding this um, is something like a divine will. So, if the whole universe is uh, organized in accordance with the will of God, then um, this this integration of the part into the whole, or of the individual with other individuals, sort of follows naturally from that uh, that uh, divine plan so this is the, the sort of most straightforward way of understanding uh, the integration of individuals with each other uh, and there's like various forms this can take um, as he points out so this idea of uh, the chosen people um, or um, this virtual community of the chosen uh, who are only sort of revealed at the end of time um, and um various notions of progress in the um, understanding of the divine plan um these are all sort of different ways you can understand this uh the same notion of integration uh into something like a divine plan Uh, but then he points to an alternate uh approach to understanding this integration of the individual uh, into what is greater than the individual, or in, in relation to other individuals. Uh, and this is the pre socratics notion of complementarity. Uh, and this was so uh, complementarity in this sense, is a relationship between contraries. Uh, and here, I think he's he's thinking especially of Heraclitus um, uh, and and so in this um, in this system, there are always these contraries that are uh, sort of uh, intimately related to each other so that uh, there's never birth without death or death without birth. Um, these, these two pairs are um, tied to each other and, and linked to each other in this intimate way. Uh, and um, then he, he points to Nietzsche as um, having rediscovered in uh um, in this, uh, in, in the notion of the eternal recurrence, the, this notion of complementarity from the pre-Socratics, uh, and then, so Angus has posted a question about that, so he says this reference to Nietzsche, um, is the eternal return the complementarity of being and becoming, um, I think, so the way that Simondon expresses it here in the text is that, um, um, it's the complementarity of the sum of becoming uh, that is expressed by the notion of eternal return. So what um, what is complementary here are the, the various aspects of reality. Um, it, it's an understanding of reality as composed of these uh, con- pairs of contraries that um, are in this sort of eternal conflict. But the, the actual conflict itself is something uh, that... Um, that subsists, uh, that is eternal. So even though each individual entity is born and dies, or, or is destroyed, or decays, or whatever, um, though those entities, the, the whole process uh, in which the the various entities come into being and then disappear, um, that whole process is eternal. So there's this um, um, integration of the individual into this eternal process that. Uh, is greater than the individual. I think that's what he's pointing towards. Um, it, it's not so much the the complementarity of being and becoming that, um, uh, in the way that uh, Simon Don used that term in the in the individuation book. Okay, so it's like the the eternal return is what affects the complementarity of the
1: different individuals and in becoming.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's it's this notion that each individual beings becoming it's it coming into being and its growth and decay and and eventual um death or or disappearance or destruction, uh that whole process itself is is what integrates that individual into something greater than itself. And uh like in Heraclitus, um there's this notion of the this um great cycle um where the elements all sort of uh rotate through this cycle and they all return into fire. And, uh, and then are, are sort of um, uh, separated out from fire again into a, a new cycle. Um, and, uh, and so all of the different um, beings that, that are made up of different elements um, are eventually consumed in fire and uh, returned to this uh, sort of primordial fire and then are, are recreated anew. So there's this eternal cycle uh, in which beings are, are created and destroyed Um, and, and, and it's that, that cycle that, um, that is the integration of those beings into the whole. Um, and then, so, uh, Simondon then passes to this notion of, of value or the relationship between value and action or, um, what, what the, the role of value is with, with respect to action, um. And he he suggested that in relation to um, to action, we can understand uh, value in in sort of three different ways. Um, um, so there's two two kinds of relative values, um, and and then there's uh, absolute value. Uh, and um, so, with respect to the relative values, we can. Um, we can look at the values uh, in connection with a complementary uh, condition. So um, uh, in in any pair of complementary um, elements or or principles or whatever, um, we can look at each of those uh, uh, elements or principles, and um, we can see whether the value is sort of tied to that thing, uh, to that principle. Or we can see um, value as something that is uh, external to the the principle um, but connected to it in some way. Um, And um, then the third, so those are the two types of relative value. So either the value is sort of inherent in one of the complementary principles or it's something external but connected to that principle. and then the third type of value is the absolute value, uh, which is the one that um, that Simondon says here it makes relation possible. So um, it's uh, it's this third value. It, it's um, the value of the relation as such. We can say um, it's it's not um, something that's inherent in one of the terms or connected externally to one of the terms, but it's the the value of the relation as such. Um, and uh, he, he argues here, or he suggests that um, we should take culture as being uh, an instance of, of this type of value. Uh, so culture is an absolute value. It's, it's not something that is relative to um, one complementary, uh, one element of a complementary pair. It's, uh, it's something that underlies the, the possibility for complementary pairs or for um, the integration of values into something greater um, and so he he connects this notion of culture with the um, the question of how to integrate organic life and technical life uh, so these are these are the two complementaries that we're going to be sort of uh, dealing with um, when we when we talk about culture and and so organic life of course has to do with um, what it is to be a vital individual or a living being. Um, and technical life, uh, this is something that we, we haven't seen much of in the individuation book, but it calls back to his other book, um, the uh, On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects. Um, and um, here he, he gives uh, an account of um, what it is for... A technical object to be an individual, um, to have a, a certain technical lineage, uh, and to have a, a genesis, um, and uh, and so the question of how these two types of individuation, or these two these two um, domains of human existence—the the living and um, the technical—how those two domains are are tied together this is the the problem that culture has to solve uh, or culture consists in solutions to the problem of how technical existence and um and organic existence are are related to each other
1: it, it seems like in light of uh some of the next sections on society versus community and the uh the individualist technician um maybe the the way that culture affects this complementarity between the organic and the technical will be what determines whether or not you get um, like a xenophobic nationalist culture as he, uh, you know, one of the examples he gives of community versus society later on or a more um, kind of technical uh, society culture with a, um, unipolar valuation.
0: Yeah, we can, we can already see just from the way he sort of sets up this opposition that he's going to um, criticize any um, sort of one-sided uh, um, uh, isolation of one of these terms from the other. Uh, this is a, a sort of a standard move that we've seen him do uh, many times in, uh, in the individuation book um, where he, he sets up some uh, opposition between these two terms and then he he gives us an account of um, how uh, a one-sided um, isolation of one of those terms uh, is inadequate and how we need to have some sort of um, uh, intermediate between the two, but not not in the sense of a, a mixture or something like that, but um, uh, an intermediate point from which those two opposite uh Elements can be developed in a, a genetic, um, uh, in, in a, a genesis, uh, in the, the sense of the term that he uses it. Um, and, and so he's going to do the same thing here. And so he's going to, um, as we see uh, a little bit later, he's going to um, uh, identify this um, sort of organic society, a society that is sort of one-sidedly focused on the organic Life as um, a xenophobic society, so a society that um, um, treats uh, the um, organic belonging as uh, as the the primary um, feature by which individuals are are um, granted or denied value, um, and uh, he's going to also talk about the. The complementary um, or the opposite uh, um, form of society that um, is a sort of technical society, uh, um, but yeah, we'll we'll see that in a little bit when we when we get to it. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that this um, this pair is is sort of how he um, how he wants to he wants to define this intermediate position. That out of which those two opposed positions will be, um, will, will be generable. Uh, I think this notion of,
1: uh, sorry, the uh, culture as a set of beginnings of action um, is interesting uh, in light of the, I think it was the spirituality section, section on the two spiritualities in volume one, um, where he describes emotion as the sense of action. Um, so maybe this is kind of the collective providing possible like polarizations
0: for um, for uh, actions for people yeah, i think um I think when he talks about um culture as a beginning of action here, I think he he's thinking of um, um, well let me let me just check what the French is quickly um for beginning um, but um I think the idea. Is that um, it's sort of a le- it, culture is sort of a reservoir of um, possible actions that an individual has available to them, uh, and um, it's only insofar as culture has some sort of um, integrating power that it can um, that it can sort of offer these uh potential actions to the individual as in a coherent way um so it's it's when the individual is able to um select an action uh out of this sort of reservoir of culture that um that culture has this coherence um where where a certain action is is um the correct action for this particular circumstance or something along those lines all right, um, let's go on to the next uh, section. If uh, Angus, if you'd like to read um, on the next page or something.
1: I'll just read to the end of this uh, section. Okay. This supposes that culture is somehow capable of manipulating the symbols that represent a certain technical activity or a certain biological drive, insofar as the inertia and compactness of organic conditions or technical conditions prevents them from being put into relation in the brute state. We understand why culture is linked to the capacity of symbolizing organic and technical conditions instead of transporting them as a block in the brute state. Just as in order to initiate a reaction, we do not seek to act act on the entire mass of bodies to be combined, but instead on reduced masses that will propagate the reaction analogically throughout the whole. Culture can only be effective if it possesses from the start this capacity of acting on symbols and not on brute realities. The condition for the validity of this action on symbols resides in the symbol's authenticity, i.e. the fact that they are veritably the extension of the realities they represent, and not a simple arbitrary sign artificially linked to the thing, the things that it must represent. Plato has shown that the soundness of denominations is necessary for adequate thought, and that the philosopher must occupy himself with discovering the veritable symbol of each being, which has a meaning even for the gods, according to the terms of the Cratylus. This is why all the exercises of expression play a major role in culture without, however, at any time requiring us to conflate culture with these exercises. As a means of expression, the fine arts offer culture their force of adequate symbolization, but do not constitute culture, which if it remains aestheticism does not have any effectiveness. Furthermore, instead of being the pure consumerism of the means of expression constituted in closed types, Culture must effectively serve to resolve human problems, i.e. put organic conditions and technical conditions in relation. The pure organicism or pure technicism avoids the problem of effectiveness of culture. Marxism and Freudianism reduce culture to the role of means of expression, but in reality a culture is either reflexive or does not exist. It would remain a mythology or a superstructure. Conversely, let's consider a reflexive type of culture that wants to resolve problems. We will find in it a utilization of the power to symbolize that is neither exhausted in a promotion of the organic or in an expression of the technical. Reflexive culture is sensitive to the problem of the problematic aspect of existence. It looks for what is human, i.e., what instead of being accomplished automatically and by itself requires a calling into question of man by himself and the return of the causality of reflection and self consciousness. The necessity of culture becomes apparent in the encounter of obstacles. I'm going to mispronounce this. Vladimir uh, Yankelovich writes that every problem is essentially thanatological. This is because in the simple conditions of existence, man is an organism or a technician, but never both at the same time. However, the problem, the problem appears when instead of this alternation between organic life and technical life, the necessity for a mode of compatibility between the two lives emerges within a life that simultaneously integrates them, and this is precisely what human existence is. All cultures provide an answer to this problem of compatibility posed in particular terms. Plato finds the answer in the analogy of the structure, operations, and virtues that exist between the individual and the city, in which this, in which his technical activity becomes explicit. This is the frictionless city of the Republic and the Laws. No longer seeking to immortalize man and becoming, Christianity introduces the notion of the merit of works and joins technical effort with organic life through the hope in an eternal life that integrates both aspects. Non-organic effort is converted into spiritual life. Sacrifice is a mode of conversion that supposes the possibility of this integration. The relation between the two terms is possible by way of the shared relation to God. Um I think this reference to aestheticism is interesting, and I was looking back through Volume one recently. And it seems like he associates aestheticism in the inclusion the conclusion in a couple of other places with um, an activity that is iterable but not repeatable in the sense that the ethical actus uh, or um With the kind of transduction that's proper to the physical domain rather than the biological or the psychical. Um, I think he also associates it with like action in old age, which is no longer kind of flexible enough in form and structure to really adapt to the the milieu and effects like presence in the trans individual. But he seems to be suggesting that consumerism has this kind of bare iterability as opposed to potential for like, uh, transformative repetition.
0: Yeah. That's, um, that's an interesting, um, suggestion or, um, uh, an interesting call back to volume one. Um, because I think, yeah. So when he talks about the repetition that occurs in, um, ethical life and in spirituality, it's a sort of, um, uh, creative repetition, um, in the sense that, um, you have not just um, a sort of bare repetition of an action or of a ritual or something along those lines, but you have um, a sort of new action, uh, an action that creates something new precisely by repeating a previous action. Um, and and so um, the example that I, I think I, I mentioned this example um, Uh, when we were discussing that passage uh, in in volume one um, is that you have the the Spartacus Rebellion in ancient Rome uh, in, I think, the first century BC, or I'm not sure exactly when. Um, But um, you have the Spartacus Slave Rebellion in uh, ancient Rome. And then in the 19th century, when you have the Haitian Revolution, you have... um, some uh, of the leaders are, are sort of uh, inspired by the Spartacus rebellion, um, and uh, and then later you have um, uh, in in Germany in uh, the early 20th century you have the um, Spartacist League, uh, which is the um, uh, the sort of precursor of the German Communist Party, um, which um, uh, again. Uh, calls back to Spartacus. Um, so each of these moments we can see as a, a repetition of the uh, the action of the Spartus, Spartacus slave revolts, um, but it's a repetition in new circumstances and adapted to a new environment, and uh, it's a new action. Um, and then by contrast, something like aestheticism um, would, would be... Um, would allow for some sort of repetition of the action but it's sort of um self-contained or self-enclosed in the sense that it's um it's uh like aestheticism is often associated with the motto of art for art's sake um and and so this um this idea of art for art's sake is, is something that um doesn't allow any sort of um transformative power uh, outside of art. Um, so you, you just sort of pursue art for art's sake and there's no, um, there's no understanding or, or no um, expectation that art will um, have a, a transformative power um, in, in other domains of life. Um, yeah, I, I like that example. So Angus has uh, posted in the chat here that um, someone like an, an Elvis impersonator would be someone who iterates rather than repeats. Um, yeah, so someone, an Elvis impersonator is, is just sort of um, um, reproducing something that already exists uh, in, you know, more or less adequate way. Uh, whereas, you know, repeating in, in the proper sense of the term would be to create something new that um, is in some sense in the lineage of, of Elvis or whatever other... Um, artistic creator um, that that sort of um, draws on what came before and performs a new action that that sort of revitalizes uh, the old action um, or that makes it come come to life again uh, and and so aestheticism is always uh, um, is always uh, an, a- uh, an action that s- just sort of uh repeat something in the sense of not actually creating something new but of just redoing what was already done um and so in in relation to values um uh aestheticism uh would would sort of um give up on this obligation or this um requirement of compatibility uh and, and it would just sort of look at the uh symbolization for its own sake so there would be no um no attempt on the part of culture to uh integrate the the complementary pair of uh, organic life and technical life it would just be a, a sort of self-contained culture that um rather than solving problems it would just sort of uh repeat itself um in in the the bad sense of the term uh and we can see this, I think, in a lot of um, contemporary cultural production, where it seems like every movie is a um, is like a, a sequel or a remake of something that came out in the '80s, or or um, a, a prequel, or whatever, um, or part of the you know cinematic universe of of some um, Disney brand um, uh, cultural product. Um, so. Um, Contemporary um, culture in, in film, in, a, in particular, seems to be very much in, in the vein of this aestheticism that he uh, is pointing to here, um, where it's, it's sort of just re, um, reiterating something that has already happened, rather than um, having this creative repetition of something uh, that, that brings a, an action back to life. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we touched on this a little bit, but um, there's this notion of symbols, and um, we've seen this this term symbol um, in a, a few different places in Volume One, um, where he he draws on the um, the use of the term symbol in ancient Greek and the uh, the practice of using a, a token that is um, split in half so that each or or broken in half so that each piece um, can fit back together with the other one to form a whole, um, and and this was called the symbol. Um, um, so I think that meaning is sort of at work here, or is, is sort of um, he he's he still has that in mind here, but he's he's using the term symbol here more. Um, uh, uh in the the more nor- sort of normal sense of the word rather than the way that um he's used it in volume 1 I think uh and and so here he's talking about um the way that in culture you um you integrate um organic life and technical life by turning them into symbols or by creating symbols for them so that you um you uh, you, it gives it gives you, uh, or it gives the culture as a whole this capacity of um, mastering the the different uh, elements uh, and putting them together. Um, do I mean creates or repeats? Um, in what connection? Um,
2: um, um, to um, to the impersonator. Hi.
0: Hi. Um, yeah, uh,
2: he is. Um, he does iteration uh, rather than repetition, or rather than creation.
0: Uh, so I think creation, uh, repetition in the proper sense of the term, is a kind of creation. Um, yeah, exactly. So repetition is creative. Um, so in in the sense in which Simon Don wants to use this term, repetition. Uh, you, you only repeat an action by creating something new that brings that original action back to life again or or sort of re, uh, reincarnates that action. Um, so
2: so um, uh, what's, uh, what's the difference between iterates uh, uh, and repeats?
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, an iteration would just be sort of redoing the same thing without any sort of creative aspect to it. Whereas repetition is a, a, an action that, um, that creates, um, it's a creative action that revitalizes or, or reincarnates the original action. Um, and so you can only truly um, repeat uh, uh, the action of um, an artist or a political figure or whatever by doing something new that, that sort of brings their work back to life rather than by just sort of redoing what they did.
2: Like with a new interpretation?
0: Yeah, well, you can think of, um, like, uh, the action of a, a musician in in creating, uh, you know, a, a, whether it's a, a symphony or a, a pop song or whatever it is, something that... Um, um, uh, they, they create something uh, new that, that has meaning for for other people and, and that has value and that, um, uh, that action of creating the, the new work of art, um, is completely different than the action of someone else, you know, in music school or, you know, a, a kid learning to play guitar or whatever that learns how to play that song. Um, that, that, uh, that action of, uh, just redoing what has already been done is not the same thing as creating something new. Um, but someone else, you know, the kid who, um, the kid who, um, is learning a song by their favorite musician, um, they, uh, might go on in a few years to, um, write a new song, uh, a new musical creation that, um, sort of calls back to the first one, um, and, and sort of brings the first one back to life uh, in a, a new way, in a new environment. Um, but uh, that's, that's a completely different action than just learning to play the, the first musician's song.
2: So it's close to interest, uh, textuality.
0: Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same idea, but yeah, so there's the sense in which, um, in the same thing with like uh, reading a, a text, um um yeah um so when when you read a text there's uh, a certain creativity to that uh reading process as well um you you make it come to life in a new uh environment in a new um circumstance uh um and and so there's um yeah there's uh a similarity there um yeah and uh so angus has also p- pointed to this um notion of naming and and yeah so the fine arts um have this capacity to um make something nameable um so um they they sort of uh and i think this he might be thinking here especially of um uh like novelists for example where there might be a a sort of social phenomenon or uh, intellectual phenomenon or whatever that has no um sort of no, no place in the culture yet. And the novelist or maybe the poet um, is able to sort of um, come up with a, a phrase or a, a word or something that captures that phenomenon. And uh, and then that and then a- afterwards, that phenomenon is, is sort of part of the culture in a explicit way, in, in, in a way that it wasn't before. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next bit. I don't want it to... I mean we could we could probably spend the whole time just talking about these first couple pages, but let's uh let's move on and and um, um, read the next page or so uh, I'm not sure how long this section is actually because I think there are yeah let's read the whole uh of the of section two if someone else would like to read
2: okay uh the dark between the uh, this part
0: yes yeah. uh, the dark zone between et cetera.
2: The dark zone between the substantialism of the individual and integration into the group. We should note the particularly pronounced uh, characteristic that the problem takes when technical activity is not reduced to war or to the management of the city, like when the citizens of the city with slavery would be relieved from labor. labor. Christianity uh, corresponds to the necessity of integrating labor into the problem which was not numbered among the techniques of the citizen. It would be completely false to consider that Christian culture is devalued because it corresponds to the human problem of the slave, whereas a Greco-Roman culture would be evaluated because it corresponds to the position of the problem that does not contain the function of labor. If one of these um, cultures is incomplete, Uh, then so is the other. They are incomplete in a simultaneous and uh, complementary way. They are unfinished cultures in the sense that each of them supposes both the spiritual exclusion and the material existence of the other culture. Paganism and Christianity are reciprocal cultures that constitute an existential couple. By delving deep Deeper into the study of Greco Roman culture itself, we would find that before the historical appearance of Christianity, cultural traditions fulfilled the function that it later assumed with the magnitude that was on the scale of the new intellectual world. At the level of the city, initi- initiatory cults like Orphism and Pythagoreanism, or even the Mysteries of Cybele, constituted an element of thought that was not pagan properly speaking, the work of Plato reveals the importance of the values that they represented. In in order to detail what Christianity is, Tacitus likens it to the cult of Dionysus, with which he will more or less completely conflate it. Considered as a culture, Christianity comes to replace the plurality of the initiatory cults of sacrifice and resurrection, but it is endowed with the power of universality that makes it the antagonist of the official religion of the Roman Empire. The contability between pure paganism and the various initiatory cults, which already revealed its precariousness, will come to an end when Christianity begins to act as a sort of gravitational attractor for the various aspirations that, until then, had precisely constituted and been divided up into particular mysteries. However, this antagonism of complementary cultural aspects has never ceased. Today, there is still a relative opposition between a civic culture and a religious culture. Nevertheless, there is no possible unity between these two sides of culture at the level of their particular content. Only reflexive thought can discover a unitary meaning of the values in this antagonism. Every will to synthesize at the level of these two cultural contents would only end up with a breakdown into stereotype determinations. This is what is revealed by the examination of these two very insufficient synthesis that constitute civic culture having become religion or religious culture having become the support of a closed society. Masonic thought itself enclosed in the meditation of abstract civic virtues and religious faith becomes the feeling of very sick membership to the little group of faithfuls Affirming through symbolism and ritual its distinction from the other social group. A civilization becomes religion is opposed to a religion become civilization. And yet, only a thought capable of instituting a ver- veritable uh, allegmatic relation between these two aspects of culture is valid. It is there- thereby not dogmatic, but reflexive. The meaning of values disappears in this incompatibility between two cultures. Only philosophical thought can discover dynamic compatibility between these two blind forces that sacrifice man to the city or collective life, to the individual search for salvation. Without reflexive thought, culture breaks down into incompatible and unconstructive efforts that Consummate civic preoccupation and the search for an individual destiny in a sterile confrontation. The sense of values is the refusal of an incompatibility in the domain of culture. The refusal of a fundamental absurdity in man.
0: Right. So here we have um, the rather than the question of integration of the uh, organic, um, organic life and technical life. Um, now we're looking at the question of the integration of the individual and the group. Um, how is it that the individual and the group are related to each other? Um, and we saw some discussion of this question in volume one. Um, um, we had the whole section on collective individuation. Um, and um, what he's talking about here is in relation to um, to uh, the ancient world's um, these two sort of opposed um uh ways of integrating the individual into the group um uh which are the city and and religion um um uh or in fact religion is, is sort of broken up into two um these two different ways of of um of relating to the group um so in in paganism in the uh proper sense of the term uh, there's uh religion is always associated with the city or with the um the the group in general uh so religion is always the religion of the particular political um environment in which you live uh, uh but then uh there are also in the ancient world there are these um initiatory cults um uh which are um um there are these sort of secret societies uh that um are usually more open to um like to women for example and to slaves in in some cases um and they're not part of the civic religion they're not part of the religion of the city or of the political um organization they um they're sort of a private religion, and they tend to be um, sort of mystical in a lot of cases. They involve something like a, a union of the worshiper with the divinity. Um, and um, they also um, have this notion of an afterlife, which is not really prominent in uh, ancient Greek religion. Uh, and, and so there's a, a notion in these cults of uh, individual survival after death, Um and um, um, he so he, he thinks that this um, these initiatory cults are um, sort of independent from paganism in the proper sense of the word, uh, and they're closer to uh, Christianity. Um, and and a lot of the ancient authors who talk about Christianity make the same um, comparison where they just assimilate Christianity to the um, initiatory cults. Um, and uh, so what what's um what's different about Christianity is that it becomes uh, a sort of universal in the Mediterranean world. Um, it uh, rather than being uh, a, an initiatory cult that is sort of predominant in one region, it becomes the the universal religion of the whole Mediterranean world for a time, uh, and it um, it so in that sense it integrates all the different um, aspirations and values of all the different communities of that whole area and in particular it includes um, it includes slaves whereas the civic religion uh, of, of paganism did not um, and so Simon Do argues that these two opposed figures of religion are, um, are uh, form a complementary pair and they're each limited. Um, So we shouldn't sort of devalue one versus the other, but each of them um, sort of um, makes up what the other one lacks. Uh, And um, it's only by uh, a sort of integration of both aspects that um, culture can really play the role that it's supposed to play. Um, And, when when culture doesn't um doesn't integrate both aspects it sort of degenerates so it de- degenerates into um something like a civic religion and so he talks about uh freemasonry here um as the um uh example of this um and then the other sort of degeneration uh is when um religion just becomes a a sort of um uh ritual that uh that uh identifies one group of people uh, as the the faithful or the uh the people that belong to this religion and rather than this uh sort of universal principle um that it is in christianity um and uh in each case each of these um principles or each of these versions of uh of trying to relate the individual and in the group is a, a sort of incomplete synthesis. It it doesn't um, allow culture to play the role that it should play, uh, and and so in uh, what what culture should be able to do is to have this reflexive role. It should um, institute a, a sort of convertibility between the two uh, values. Um, it should it should be able to um, create. Uh, what he calls here a dynamic compatibility between um, collective life and uh, the individual. Uh, so it, it's not something that just sort of integrates the individual into the city uh, or one that um, takes the individual to be primary and uh, sort of uh, denies the value of collective life. Uh, it, it should be some sort of, um, uh, some way of making compatible these two opposed uh, considerations or proposed principles yeah angus that's a, an interesting comment do you want to maybe elaborate a little bit on on what you were talking about um the one about the technician yeah yeah, yeah
1: um in one of the sections that's coming up he talks about the uh, the technician as the pure individual um, and he actually associates the technician with the He's talking about Homer, and he says, the first example he gives is the doctor, but he also says that the uh, like the sorcerer and the priest are technicians. And it seems like, you know, the essence of being a technician for Simon was is like a a direct connection to like the object, or I guess the world itself, um, which confers a certain social status as opposed to uh this the social status being derived from uh like an interindividual relation but he says that uh the technician has to kind of diagnose something that is hidden in the world or in the object like the entrails of birds in augury or other animals in augury or uh the physician um you know kind of divining what's wrong with um the sick person. And, you know, I think if we see this section in light of the, uh, the section on the two, the two aspects of spirituality in Volume One, um, in that section, he talks about emotion, which I think will, will emotion and faith, which I think will correspond to the mystery cult aspect here um, as being kind of on the individual side of the collective. And it seems like the these initiatory cults have a, um, are have a, I guess a, I don't know stronger appeal, for lack of a better word, for the individual uh, as opposed to being purely civic. So I don't know if he intends a connection between the mystery cults as the individual um, side of religion and the technician as the kind of individual who stands apart by virtue of his connection to the uh sort of hidden or occult or like esoteric aspects of the world or the object
2: as he mentioned paganism before and on other pages yeah because i'm very interested in paganism as a topic
0: yeah i don't think he's specifically talked about paganism um in volume one um as far as i remember um but yeah maybe uh, another place to look would be in part three of on the mode of existence of technical objects um which uh this whole um this whole text is is sort of calling back to that part um of uh of that book uh because he in that part he gives um a sort of genetic anthropology so he gives a um a genesis of the various modes of existence of the human being, um, and it starts with magic as the the sort of fundamental relation of the human being to the world. So it's a it's a sort of undifferentiated relation to the world, and it's constituted by um, um, a, a relationship to special um, places and times in the world. So um, I think that would be something that you could. Um, Definitely associate with paganism, which tends to be um, uh, tied to uh, particular holy sites or um, particular times of the year, where a certain religious ceremony has to be performed, or or things like that. Um, so I think I think that is probably the the closest uh, or the the place to look for um, uh, more discussion of something like paganism in in Simon. Um, but as to your question, Angus, I'm I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's something that we'll have to um, sort of keep in mind as we keep reading. Uh, I'm not sure if he means for us to make a connection between the technician and the mystery cults in the way that you suggested. But it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting suggestion. Um, so let's um, sort of keep that in mind as we read. Okay, so I can read the next bit. Uh, let's see how long this section. Yeah, I'll read just section three, which is a short one. Section 3, The Problematic of and Search for Compatibility This antagonism leaves open the place for a possible compatibility if the individual, instead of being conceived as a substance or a precarious being aspiring to substantiality, is grasped as the singular point of an open infinity of relation. If relation has the value of being, there is no longer any opposition between the desire for eternity and the necessity of collective life. Restrictive civicism, in whatever form it may take, is symmetrical with and sometimes the antidote for a conception of isolated individual destiny. It responds to a substantialism of the individual and is opposed to the former by accepting it. What is tragic about choice is no longer fundamental if choice is no longer what establishes communication between an independent city and an independent individual as substances. Value is not opposed to determinations, it makes them compatible. The sense of values is inherent in the relation through which man wants to resolve conflict By establishing a a compatibility between the normative aspects of his existence, without an elementary normativity, which is dealt with in some way by the individual and already contains an incompatibility, there would be no problem. What is important to note, uh, sorry, but it is important to note that the existence of a problematic does not resolve the incompatibility that it expresses or designates. Indeed, this problem cannot be fully defined in its terms, for there is no symmetry between the terms of the moral problem. The individual can live the problem, but he can only shed light on it by resolving it. The supplement of being discovered and created as action is what allows for consciousness, after the fact, to define the terms in which the problem is posed. When it is a matter of a moral problem, the systematic that allows us to think the terms of the problem simultaneously is not really possible except starting from the moment when the solution is discovered. Facing the problem, the subject is on too tenuous a level of being to be able to assume the simultaneous position of the terms between which a relation will be established in action under these conditions no pure intellectual approach no vital attitude can resolve the problem the sense of values resides in the feeling that prevents us from seeking a solution already given in the world or in the ego like an intellectual schema or a vital attitude value is the sense of the optative and in any case one cannot reduce action to choice for choice is a recourse to schemas of already pre- performed actions already preformed actions which once we eliminate all but one of them appear to us as if they were truly already existing in the future, as if we were uh, necessarily destined not to assume them. A sense of value is what prevents us from having to confront the problems of choice. The problem of choice appears when all that remains is the empty form of action, when technical forms, technical forces and organic forces are disqualified in us and seem indifferent to us. If there is no initial loss of biological and technological qualities, the problem of choice cannot be posed as a moral problem. Since there are no predetermined actions which are compatible, which are comparable to the bodies that Platonic souls must choose in order to be incarnated. There is neither a transcendent choice nor an imminent choice. One sense of value is derived from the self-constitution of the subject by his own action. The moral problem that can be posed by the subject is therefore at the level of this ongoing constructive mediation, due to which the subject progressively becomes conscious of the fact that he has resolved problems when those when these problems have been resolved into action. Uh, so now he's he's sort of calling back to the beginning of this chapter where he's talked about um, the compatibility of actions or or value as a seeking of compatibility between uh, possible actions. Um, and so here, this is um, the the third sense of value that, that he introduced earlier, um, where. The first two were relative senses and then the third is the absolute sense Um, and sort of paradoxically, the absolute sense of value is the sense of value of the relation as such. Um, So it's it's insofar as value uh, insofar as the relation is taken as having the status of being, uh, which is a a principle that we've seen in volume one um, and sort of repeated here. it's insofar as relation has the status of being that um, the relation uh, can can have value as such or can be value, um, and and so um, what we what we want to get to or what we what we want to be able to grasp is um, a notion of value in which the um, the incorporation of the individual into the city is no longer a problem. There's no longer a conflict or antagonism between the individual and the, the collective um, because value is precisely the solution to that problem. Uh, so value is is the discovery of a compatibility or the invention of a compatibility between the uh individual and the collective or uh, between these complementary pairs of opposed gender uh, and those so he he goes on to talk about um how when we how we we, we shouldn't um understand action in terms of choice um and this is uh i think uh, a, a sort of central idea in um a lot of um, ethics or, or moral philosophy in general is this notion of choice. And, um, you know, there are arguments about, uh, freedom of the will and whether human beings actually, uh, are capable of making free choices and, and so on. Um, and Simon Don here is arguing that that whole sort of, um, problem is misguided. Uh, and it, we only ever make choices, uh, when, when we um, when we haven't solved the problem in the proper sense of of what solving a problem means, um so we make a choice when we have these two alternatives that are sort of um, um equal or equivalent to each other, and we just have to choose one of them uh, in whatever uh whatever way we can. We might flip a coin to pick option one or option two or or something like that um and and so in this situation. It means that you haven't um, discovered the compatibility of the two options. You haven't uh, um, solved the problem. Uh, so there, there's um, choice is not, um, is not sort of the, the fundamental condition of action. It, it's, uh, choice is only um, a result of not having solved a problem. Uh, it, it's only when the problem is not solved that you um, have something like a choice. Uh, and so that's um i think an alternate sort of framing of um um an alternate framing of what we can think of in terms of ethics or or moral philosophy um uh, it's a sort of a, a program <clears throat> a program for a uh, um, an ethics that would not be oriented around the concept of choice
2: yeah i mean uh, it's it's kind of a uh important uh, like uh to um to fix a problem uh like if uh y- yeah you can like explain it maybe uh, before making decision right or
0: yeah so it's not it's not just that you want to understand the problem before you make a decision but um what he's arguing here is that um we only ever have the situation where you have to choose between like option one and option two. Um, and, and you have to make a decision in this sense. Um, you only ever face that situation when you haven't fully solved the the problem of compatibility of values in the first place. Um, so like in these questions of, um, the integration of the individual and the, the group where it seems like there's a, a sort of antagonism or, um, a, uh, um, uh, incompatibility, uh, between, uh, the interest of the individual and the interests of the group, um, it's, it's only because we, as a, as a society or as a culture, we haven't, um, fully, um, developed the compatibility of those two interests or those two, uh, competing values. Um, it's only because we haven't solved that problem that this, uh, it's sort of presented in the form of a decision where you might face a decision where um, you, you know, one, one option is better for you as an individual and then another option is better for um, the collective as a whole and you have to choose between the, t- the two options. Um, so um, the idea here is that we, we should understand ethical life as being um, sort of centered around this notion of making compatible rather than centered around the notion of choice. Uh, and um, yeah, so it, we, we want to um, understand that process of coming to make, uh, coming to make something compatible, the, the process of making compatible is, is sort of the core of our ethical life rather than uh, choosing between two options.
2: Yeah, it's strange that you know, most of the philosophers that that uh, built the Western structure are Greek, but the people who play the universality and compatibility more tend to be more Romans, in a way.
0: Um, yeah, so you, maybe you're thinking of like the the Stoics, who um who who sort of emphasized this notion of cosmopolitanism and um, uh, like a universal. Um, belonging of human beings is that sort of what you're thinking of
2: i'm thinking that like the the greeks they they can come up with wonderful ideas like in the past the ancient greeks not the modern ones but when it comes to applying them in a universality and compatibility way uh, we find that the romans succeeded way better
0: yeah that's uh, an interesting um Idea um, that would it'd be something you'd have to do. Um, uh, I think a pretty. Um, it would take a lot of um, analysis to to really um, justify that that thesis. Um, I think you'd have to. Um, I mean, partly it's just a fact of the Roman Empire being um, sort of the um, the the dominant political force over a period of, uh, I don't know, 600 years or so um, uh, in the Mediterranean world. Um, and so there was just uh, sort of a greater capacity for ideas to circulate in that world um, as opposed to uh, some of the ancient Greek um, ideas were were um, first articulated in a world where uh, there were all these sort of um, independent city-states or, or small um, political units. And, and so there were more, um, more barriers to the circulation of ideas. I think that's part of it. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting to, to just try to look at um, how this uh, notion of um, making compatible um, sort of fits in with the idea of universality that you find in in um, some of the uh, classical Roman philosophers.
2: Yes, and they are uh, like uh, in the previous page. Um, they got stuck on the religious aspect more. That is like more Christian, but the Romans also they went further into the universality and uh, civil. Also, like uh, they kind of took uh, two uh, two opposite ways.
0: Yeah, I I think. Um yeah so there's a a sort of universality in the sense of the um uh the universal citizenship of the roman empire um or or um there was this aspiration to a sort of universal um um uh, political citizenship um in in the roman empire Uh, and then at the same time you have um at, at a certain point um the roman empire adopts christianity as its official religion uh, and and so uh, it's a again a universal religion um so yeah you're right that they're, they're sort of both strands or both um, paths are are um, uh, at work in in the understanding of uh, the Roman Empire um yeah so let's go on to the next uh, the next section how long is this one yeah it's again a short one so if someone else could just read the whole of section four
1: yeah I can read this one Okay, section 4, Conscience and Ethical Individuation. It could be noted that in such a conception, one's conscience seems to have no role to play. In fact, it is impossible to dissociate one's veritable conscience from action. Consciousness is the reactivity of the subject with respect to himself, which allows him to exist as an individual by being to himself the norm of his action. The subject subject acts by controlling himself, i.e. by putting himself in the most perfect communication possible with himself. Consciousness is this return of the subject's causality back onto himself when an optative action is on the verge of resolving a problem. One's conscience differs from from psychological consciousness insofar as psychological consciousness expresses the reverberation within the subject of his acts or events in accordance with the subject's present state. Consciousness is judgment according to a current and actual determination. Conversely, one's conscience relates acts with beginnings of acts to what the subject strives to be at the end of this act. One's conscience can only do so in an extremely precarious fashion by somehow extrapolating so as to account for the current and actual transformation of the subject. One's conscience is all the finer when it better manages to judge in accordance with what the subject will be. This is why there is a relative determination in the domain of conscience. Since one's conscience from the start establishes an initial type of reactivity, like mere psychological consciousness, and then a second type of reactivity that stems from the fact that the modalities of this return of causality depend on the regime of action that they control. In this recurrence of information, the subject is a being that is in depth not only with a simple internal teleology, but also with a teleology that is itself submitted to a self-regulation. Psychological consciousness is already regulative. One's conscience is a regulative consciousness submitted to an internal self-regulation. The subtly regulative consciousness can be called normative consciousness. It is free because it elaborates its own regime of regulation itself. This freedom cannot be found in any being or any system that would depend on a single set of conditions. It would lead to an indetermination or an activity that would be iterative, oscillatory, or based on relaxation. This freedom can only be found in the self creation of a regime of compatibility between asymmetrical conditions, like the ones we find at the basis of action. A teleological mechanism can imitate the functioning of psychological consciousness, which can be instantaneous. A teleological mechanism cannot imitate conscience, for it never has a twofold and simultaneous conditioning. The organic and the technical must already be present. Close to being put into a relation in order for conscience to be able to exist. Valorizing consciousness, therefore, defines a level of teleological activity that cannot be reduced to any automatism. The solution of the moral problem cannot be solved by a computer. So, this makes me think of the conversation we were just having about the difference between repetition and iteration. Um, it seems like there's a kind of creative aspect to conscience, which is related to this. Uh, this I can't remember the word he uses, but kind of the fragility of projection um, of the subject state now and the extrapolated state at the end of the action. Um, and it seems like this kind of contingency, uh, like possibility of not being able to end up where you want to be at the end of the conscious, uh, at the end of the action, is kind of what uh, I think it's an essential feature of conscience. And maybe this is what distinguishes it from, uh, at the beginning of the next section, he talks about xenophobia and nationalism, where there really isn't any experimentation. Um, you already have the answer, the quote-unquote right answer from the outset. Um, and so in that sense, it's not really, these aren't really actions of of conscience. It's just uh, the iteration of this given answer.
0: Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um... I was going to um, make a note here about translation um, which um, so there's a difficult um, word with and and there's a footnote here or an end note I should say um, on the word conscience which I, I think is probably explaining this um, but so the the French word conscience can mean either consciousness or um, or conscience um, and so in this passage both of these meanings are at work in different, um, different, uh, parts of the, of the text. Um, so yeah, the, it's, there's a, a bit of a translation, um, difficulty. So here he's chosen to, um, translate the same word, sometimes as consciousness and sometimes as conscience. And, uh, I think that's probably a good decision. Um, um, but yeah, it, it's, Helpful to keep in mind that when he's talking about the contrast between psychological consciousness and and conscience, he's using the same word for for consciousness and for conscience, um, and so the the connection between the two might be a little bit more um, obvious than it is in the English text. Um, and and so what what conscience is, or or how conscience works in um, in the functioning of the individual is this sort of second order regulation so um psychological consciousness is is a sort of um um, uh, homeostatic mechanism so it's we can understand um the the sort of operation of the living being as oriented towards uh, preserving a certain state um so like you can think of this in terms of like the chemical composition of the organism so if it's lacking certain um nutrients then it will seek out uh, food that has those nutrients in it uh if it's lacking water it will seek out water and so on um and and so the whole organization of the of the living being is oriented towards um preserving certain states and and so um, and this is, this is sort of a, a basic um, functioning of a living being. Um, and, and this is how psychological consciousness functions in the individual. But what um, conscience or, or the second order regulation allows is for the selection of the uh, goal states of the first order regulation. So in a, an individual that doesn't have something like a conscience, or that, um, or that uh, doesn't um, uh, sort of allow conscience to work. Um, they they're sort of just automatically led to particular goal states. But we, as um, free beings beings that um, that have a conscience, we can select particular goal states, and, and we can say that I want to. Um, you know, maintain this goal state or, or to orient myself towards this goal state. Um, and and so that's that's what conscience, conscience um, as the second order regulation allows us to do. Um, yeah, that's, a, I think that could be um, a way of sort of translating this into Heidegger's terms. So Angus has posted in the chat here that maybe a being with conscience is one for which its being is an issue. Um yeah, and and Heidegger does talk about conscience in um, Division Two of Being in Time um, as um, sort of what what calls the uh, the individual being out of uh, fallenness into the the everyday world and um, um, sort of uh, elicits from the 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 being uh, the individual being its its um, sort of uh, authentic um it it sort of calls it into authenticity into resoluteness yes sorry that's the word i'm looking for um and um yeah so i think it's maybe a similar type of idea here Um, um and um so conscience is is sort of um uh what is characteristic of a free being and and here we can understand freedom not in the sense of uh, freedom of choice, um, but freedom as, as a, a kind of self-determination. Um, so uh, a being with conscience is a being that's capable of determining itself rather than sort of operating in accordance with um, a preset um, automatic uh, mechanism. And so this is what he means by saying that um, the solution to the moral problem cannot be solved by a computer. Um so, insofar as a computer is something that is um, sort of pre-set to operate in a certain way, um, it's it's not capable of having a, a conscience, um, and, and it's only insofar as um, uh, an entity is capable of having uh, self-determination of of assigning goals for itself and um, uh, selecting a, a particular goal state, um, it's, only, it's only then that you can have something like conscience and uh, a moral uh, consciousness. Uh, let's go on to the next section. It's a little bit longer. So let's read um, about a page and then stop for discussion. Uh, and then we'll hopefully be able to finish the section uh, um, before we have to uh, end for the day. Uh, so if someone else would like to read the first page or so of section five. No volunteers. Okay, I can read the first section and then someone else can read the, the next page. Um, okay, section five. Ethics and the process of individuation. Certainly automatic and stereotyped behaviors emerge once the conscience abdicates. Afterwards, thought the species and genera replace, replaces the meaning of values. Moral classification characterizes a simple social or organic teleology And is basically automatic. This is what can be discovered by utilizing national stereotypes as a means of thinking morally. After a short amount of time, we wind up with a blockage of conscience and, or even psychological consciousness. We remain at the level of positive or negative social instincts, like xenophobia, the assimilation of foreigners to dirty beings. One can see the same thing play out in groups, which are supposed to share the same feelings as part of a similar of similar specific social classes. What creates an illusion here is the facile convergence, <clears throat> convergence contained within group feelings or instincts that seems to give them the power to resolve problems by way of an easily obtained collective consent. But in fact, purely regulated feelings are much less stable than the values elaborated by individuals. A change in social circumstances is enough to reverse stereotypes and give rise to a different convergence. Social sentiments could be compared to this magnet magnetization that is easy to produce in a magnetic metal below the Curie point. A slightly intense field is all it takes to change the residual magnetization. Conversely, if the molecules have been magnetized above the Curie point, and have been able to be oriented in the field, and then are cooled back down while conserving this magnetization, a a much more intense demagnetizing field is required to demagnetize the metal. This This is because it is not simply a question of a group phenomenon, but of a magnetization orientation of each molecule taken individually. People united by the sense of the same value cannot be divided by a simple organic or technical circumstance. Friendship contains a sense of values that founds a society on something other than the vital necessities of community. Friendship requires an exercise of conscience and a sense of community requires the exercise of an action. Community is biological whereas society is ethical. Consequently, we can understand that societies cannot exist without communities but that the reciprocal of this affirmation is not true, and that there can be communities without societies. The distinction that Bechsan makes between closed societies and open societies is no doubt valid. Open societies correspond to an influence of individuals over their mutual relations, while community, the statutory form of relation, does not require conscience to exist. Every society is open to the extent that the only valid criterion for them is constituted by action. Without there being a symbolon, Uh, of a biological or technical nature to recruit or exclude members to or from this society. A society whose sense is lost because its action is impossible becomes a community and consequently becomes closed and therefore elaborates stereotypes. A society is a community in expansion whereas a community is a society that has become static. Communities utilize a thought that proceeds by inclusions and exclusions, genera and species. A society utilizes an analogical thought in the veritable sense of the term and does not acknowledge merely two values, but a continuous infinity of degrees of value, from nothingness to the perfect, without there being any opposition of categories of good and evil and of good and bad beings. For a society, only positive moral values exist. Evil is a pure nothingness, an absence, and not the mark of voluntary activity. The reasoning of Socrates, Udes Econ amartane, according to which no one does evil or wrong willingly, is remarkably revealing as to the veritable conscience of the individual and of a society of individuals. In fact, since one's conscience is self-normative and self-constitutive, it is essentially placed in the alternation either of not existing or of not doing evil or wrong-willing. It supposes that the relation to other people is a relation of individual to individual in a society. Conversely, in a community, exterior communities, due to the fact that they are exterior, are thought to be bad. The categories of inclusion and exclusion are contained in their implicit type, which is interiority or exteriority with respect to the community. Out of these primitive categories of inclusion and exclusion, which corresponds to actions of assimilation and disassimilation, there develop annexed categories of purity and impurity, kindness and harmfulness, which are the social roots of the notion of good and evil. Here, there are symmetrical notions like those that the living individual manifests in the bipolar opposition of the dangerous and the assimilable. The bipolarity of values reveals a community. The unipolarity of values reveals a society. We should note here that that technical activity does not introduce a bipolarity of values in the same way as biological activity. Indeed, for a being who constructs, there is no good or bad, but the indifferent and the constructive, the neutral and the positive. The positivity of values stands out from a background of neutrality, And this neutrality is fully provisional and completely relative, since what is not yet useful can become so, depending on the acts of the constructive individual who will know how to use it. On the contrary, what has received a functional role in labor cannot lose it again and is thereby always found to be invested with a characteristic of value. Value is irreversible and completely positive. There is no symmetry between value and the absence. Yeah, we can... um, Tie this discussion here back to our questions about the two senses of the collective in uh, Volume One, um, where we we sort of came to the conclusion that he's using, uh, or he, he understands the collective as having two aspects or two sides that um, are related to each other but are are distinct, uh, and and so we have one sense of the collective in which. Um, the collective is sort of always at work, um, even, uh, even when an individual is, uh, I don't know, trapped on a desert island or something like that. They, um, they still sort of bear with them uh, the language that they learned and the different habits that they acquired as part of a society or part of a collective um, and, and so on. Um, so even the individual trapped on a desert island is still a member of a collective in in some sense. Um, that's one sort of side of the collective, and then the other side is the one that we um, we saw in relation to um, this um, ordeal of solitude, uh, and and this, this is the the sense in which the collective is something rare and something that um, is only ever um, is only ever produced. Through this ordeal of solitude um, and uh, this side of the collective is one that um, uh, is, is a sort of um, uh, an, an event that um, can be repeated through history but is, uh, is a rare occurrence and is not, uh, uh, it's not something that is constantly present like the other side of the collective. Uh, and so here he's talking about two different notions of um of collect of the collective life um and uh so he he uses the term community and society here which i think is a bit different than his use of those terms in uh in volume one or um at least he, he doesn't make this exact distinction elsewhere i don't think um and the idea, so he, he states it in sort of one line, but he says community is biological, whereas society is ethical. Um, and so community would be um, would be something like um uh the sort of uh, automatic um creation or the automatic regulation of a collective in in re- response to um, changes in the environment or um, obstacles that come up in in. Uh, reaching a certain goal, but the the whole um, process is automatic and sort of um, uh, predetermined uh, in terms of what the goal states are. And uh, by contrast, um, society is uh, uh, is characterized by the phenomenon of conscience um, that we saw in the last section, or or um, some sort of equivalent to conscience at the collective level. Uh, so it's it's uh, a collective that is um, capable of setting its own goals and is not sort of predetermined, uh, and, and so it, it's self determining uh, in in a way that the individual with a conscience is self determining. Uh, and this bit about the different sort of um, scales of values is not um, not that clear to me. But so he's he says here that um, we have. Two different um, sort of scales of values. On the one hand, you have one uh, scale of values in which you have uh, good and evil, or or good and bad, as opposed term <coughs> opposed terms. Um, um, and then you have another scale of values in which um, the values are are only positive. You don't have an opposition between good and bad. You have degrees of Goodness, or something like that, um, um, and so he argues that the uh, the first one, the one that has an opposition between good and bad, um, is characteristic of community of uh, the sort of automatically regulated collective, um, whereas the second one, the the scale which um, only has degrees of goodness. Um, is characteristic of societies um, or of collectives that are capable of self-determination. Um, but why exactly that is, or what the connection is between the two is something that I um, am not really sure about. Um, so in t- that might sort of become clear in later sections as we continue to read, but um, um, yeah, the why it is that, um, the, that it's, Communities, in the sense that he's using the term here, have um, these opposed values of good and bad, uh, whereas societies have uh, the scale of values uh, of degrees of goodness. Um, I think that's not, uh, not obvious from, from this part of the. T- I think this section is interesting um, to think of in relation to that
1: section from volume one on the end group and the out group. So I think that there he said that every collective has a, you know, is an in-group relative to an out-group. But here he seems to be associating that kind of thinking with the community as opposed to the society. Um, I don't know, maybe a society would also have an in-group and an out-group, but it wouldn't wouldn't be characterized by something like nationalism or xenophobia.
0: Yeah, I think that bit on the in-group and out-group. Um, um is yeah, it's definitely relevant to to this discussion here. Um, he in in that passage he he talks about um, how all groups are both in groups and out groups at the same time, um, uh, but in different relations. Um, and and yeah, so we you have um, this uh, in group out group relationship um, with in which you have. Uh, the what, what is an in-group in one context becomes an out-group in another context or vice versa um, so like your family might be an in-group in relation to um to your neighbors and then your neighbors might be an in-group in relation to people from a different neighborhood or uh, a different city or or, or whatever and, and you can you know continue that same type of progression um up to uh, I don't know the level of human beings as being one in group, uh, um, and and so on. Um, but here he he's suggesting I think that that same uh, that alternation between in group and out group um, is is probably I think um, on the side of the community. Um, so I think I think uh, both the in group and the out group of that section are probably forms of community um and then society would be something different from either of those two uh either in-groups or out-groups um and and it's it's precisely the the self-determining role of the society that i think is um distinct from either the in-group or uh or the out-group in that earlier passage
1: you're talking about the Trial of solitude earlier, I think maybe we can see that that point about magnetization above uh, the Curie point. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but the way that that makes it more difficult to demagnetize these magnetic metals is maybe similar to some kind of uh, initiatory thing that happens in the second sense of the collective. Yeah,
0: that's that's an interesting suggestion. Um, the Curie point as as far as I um, remember, is um, a temperature at which certain magnetic properties um, um, appear or disappear in metals. um, So that um, a metal that's above uh, a certain temperature will be, um, um, and it's different for every metal, um, uh, it can be magnetized um, or demagnetized with uh, a, a weaker magnetic field than when it's below that temperature, um, and I think I think yeah, it's possible that um, we can see. Uh, he does. There there is a footnote in, on that passage about um, about the the Curie temperature and the magnetization and everything where, where he says um, uh, he says this comparison uh, or this. Um, I don't know how to translate that anyway he says we shouldn't take this translate this comparison too seriously more or less i'm I'm sort of paraphrasing but um he says we we shouldn't um create it as being an analogy in the the way that he uses the term analogy um it's just a, a sort of comparison um but i think uh it is possible to um compare this formation of the uh yeah, we shouldn't heat people to the Curie point. No, that, that would be bad. Um, but, um, um, yeah, there's uh, a sort of... Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, there there's a kind of um, comparison between the two uh, that we can make, and we can say that this heating to the Curie point is a, a sort of... Um, uh, equivalent to this ordeal of solitude um, so that so that there's something yeah a kind of social thermodynamics um yeah there's a kind of um uh ordeal that we, we can we can compare the uh, heating to the curie points to the ordeal and uh the formation of the collective is something that happens um more easily or more thoroughly or something like that um when after the ordeal has happened um or or in the process of that ordeal um whereas um collectives maybe um form in a less thorough sense when they um when they um are below the curie i like the little cartoon where's that from i think it's from like megaman yeah um Okay, uh, yeah, so let's, let's leave that here before we start getting into um, cartoons and getting too far afield. Um, but uh, yeah, so thank you everyone for, uh, for your contributions and hope to see you all next week.